This is Neijing Now, prioritizing well-being. Neijing is the vitality that shields us from disease. Neijing Now, demystifying medicine, cultivating resilience, empowering host resistance, prioritizing primary prevention. I'm Dr. Jayshree Chander. I welcome you to another short clip exploring Neijing Now. I'm speaking with Mika Pellet. He's a filmmaker in San Francisco of Teddy Bear Films. He's made a trilogy of films about globalization. We're here to talk about Bitter Seeds. It's a film about the epidemic of farmer suicides in India. Mika, welcome to Neijing Now. Hi, nice to be here. Mika, can you tell me what inspired you to make a film about farmer suicides in India? This film is the third in a trilogy, so I need to explain a bit the other parts. It's called the Globalization Trilogy. It looks at the whole process of our consuming and how that's affect the rest of the world. The first film, Store Wars, When Walmart Comes to Town, is about one small town in the U.S. that's fighting to keep Walmart out. The second one, China Blue, follows one girl that leaves a village to go and get a job and descends into sweatshop hell in a blue jeans factory in China. And it shows us how the clothes that we buy get made. And then the third one, Bitter Seeds, in India, shows us how the raw materials, the cotton that is exported into China's garment factories, is made. I was shocked when I found out that, on the average, every 30 minutes, a farmer in India kills himself out of despair because he cannot pay back his debts and he's about to lose his land. I think it totals almost like 17,000 per year. I thought that was too outrageous to be true, but the numbers held out for over 10 years. Basically, since the introduction of genetically modified seeds into the scene in India. Briefly, we're talking about an area where cotton has been grown for over a thousand years. People there claim that they are the first humans to domesticate cotton. And they have survived with cotton all this time. They were not rich, but uh, they were able to eke out a living and provide for their children, and the children continue to grow cotton because I guess it worked for them. It's a semi-arid area, so you don't have a lot of options on your agriculture. And suddenly, at the beginning of this century, the cotton is not working out for them. Well, what happened? The main thing that changed is the seeds. Monsanto, our friendly American company, has taken over the seed market of India, which is very lucrative because it's the largest in the world. Why is it the largest? Because there are more farmers in India than anywhere else in the world. To convince farmers to switch to genetically modified seeds with all kinds of promises of a higher yield. Once you do that, you can't go back to conventional seeds because the genetically modified seeds don't reproduce. You have to buy them again every year. And within a very short time, the farmers lost the conventional seeds. At the beginning, they thought, well, I can try next year by going to my cousin two villages down to get seeds, but the cousin did the same thing. So very quickly, conventional seeds completely disappeared from the market. Today, if you go to a seed shop in this part of India, you will see shelves stocked with different brands. You think, well, there's a lot of variety, but all of the brands are genetically modified. You cannot buy conventional cotton seeds anymore. And are all the brands from Monsanto or are they from all different companies? There are different Indian companies, but they're all licensing Monsanto's company. Okay, so are there any seed banks in India? There are small seed banks. Vandana Shiva is one that uh, is the most well-known. She's established a number of seed banks. She's also adopted five villages in this area and provides them with conventional organic seeds. But 
there are some 25,000 villages just in this region alone. So obviously, it's just a drop in a bucket. I asked the Organic Farmer Association of this region to come and donate organic seeds. And that scene is not in a film. Now, why is that? Because I realize how unrealistic it is. First of all, with all of their goodwill, they could not come up with enough conventional cotton seeds that a village would need for one season. Second, they explained to the farmers that in order to grow organic cotton, yes, you, you would get better prices for your cotton, but you have to leave the land fallow for three years so all the chemicals will leach out of it. And that's totally impossible for the farmers. It's not only a, an occupation or a livelihood for the farmers, it's a way of life. When you hear people talk about how agriculture needs to become more efficient and so on, you cannot look at it like you would look at factory production, for example. These farmers are born into farming. They have very little education. They're not upwardly mobile. When they lose their land, usually they go to the big cities, but what do they do there? They join the slums, they live on the streets. They try to do whatever to somehow make a few rupees, but it's only adding to the burden of the cities, and it's not where we want the future to go. Exactly. Well, we also cannot think of farming as unskilled labor, actually. Farming is an art. It's a science. It's a tradition. It involves a lot of knowledge about soil, about microorganisms, weather, seasons. It's not something you can just plug in and plug out of. It deserves its proper value. A lot of these farmers, as you say, are independent, local, small farmers that are trying to farm just a few acres of land and make their living from it. Perhaps some of the bigger farms, they have enough cushion to manage with a crop failure or something like that, but these small farmers actually have no economic resilience to make it for a year, much less three years. Yeah, I went with a film back to India to show it to farmers. And by the way, it was quite a trip because these are people that have never seen a film on the big screen in their life. They've never seen a documentary. They certainly have never seen anything about themselves, about people like themselves, two villages from them. But in a conversation afterwards, we heard farmers saying, I want to go back to farming the way my grandfather did. He didn't even have a bank account. He didn't need to borrow money because the seeds were free. He used the leaves of the neem tree, which he crushed as a pesticide, and he used the cow dung as a fertilizer. So he had no cost at all. And so even if it was a bad year, the rains didn't come or whatever, he didn't owe money to anyone. He wasn't threatened with losing his land. So certainly that knowledge is still there, but it's dying because only the old people still know about it. Right. You know what I really appreciate about this film is that it is part of a trilogy. You are making a connection between the cotton being grown in India, China, where the cotton is being then manufactured, and the conditions under which it is being manufactured into jeans. And then Walmart, I love the pun, store wars, where it's coming to America and it's making the connection with our buying habits. I really think that that's a very important connection. You know, I was just at a meeting of teachers and we were talking about films that are used in schools. The students absolutely loved the film and they got so much out of it. Making the film relevant to our lives here is really vital to caring for our earth and caring for our fellow neighbors. Well, in each one of the films also, I made a point of bringing young people like teenagers to be like main 
characters, protagonists. One of the main characters in this film is an 18-year-old young woman whose dream is to become a journalist. And we find out that she wants to tell the world about the farmer's crisis because her own father committed suicide. The village is against her, her mother is against her because young women are not supposed to go into that kind of independent profession. Uh, but she is persistent and we follow her making her baby steps, interviewing people for the first time. I do want particularly people in schools to relate to the film better because they see people their own age, but their lives are so different. You can still relate to it because you see that these kids, even if they don't have you know social media and, and smartphones, but they have dreams, desires, they have obstacles, they have to deal with their families. You know, there's a universal connection there. I've seen quite a few like high school students thinking about these things for the first time ever, like how their genes, for example, get made. In each one of the film, we get to the Western economic power uh, that's really behind it. So even the film about China, we get to know the owner of the factory. And you see he's driving a Mercedes. He's taking his customers to beautiful restaurants while his workers are there all night and so forth. We get to a scene where a buyer comes in, happens to be from England, who pushes him down on a price. Like four twenty-five is not cheap enough. He wants $4 a piece. And the factory owner has no choice because otherwise the guy will go to the competing factory. The factory owner says, those 25 cents was my profit, and he takes it off the workers because that's the weak link. That's who is vulnerable. He cannot reduce the price of the fabric or the cost of his machinery, but he can pay his workers less. So they're the ones who always get the brunt of it so that we can have a little bit of cheaper clothes. If the buyer paid four twenty-five or the buyer paid $4, we'd still pay 50 or 60 or 80 or 90 or $100 for those jeans. Actually, the rule of thumb is that we usually pay 10 times more than the cost of producing something because you have so many middlemen on the way to us and because actually it's costing more to promote and advertise, pay the rent for a fancy address on Main Street shopping area or in a shopping mall than it is to produce the stuff because the labor is actually the cheapest part in the whole story. Because the workers are so desperate for work. This is a question we need to really address is how is it that the structure of our world is such that people are so desperate for work? I am hoping that my films start debates about these things and get people to think about it in a way that maybe they haven't before. My films always have character and story front and center, not the issue. I don't want the films to be too polemical, too preachy. I want to draw people in by good story and good storytelling. But once they're there and they get connected with these characters and their lives, that's when people begin to, on their own, think about, well, what does it mean? And why should it be that it's so difficult for them compared to us? Exactly. Your film is absolutely brilliant. I want to congratulate you for all the awards that you've won for it. You won it, the Best Documentary at San Francisco International Film Festival and several Green Awards and Humanitarian Awards. And really, it's been a successful film. Thank you. Thank you. How did you manage to get into China to film? China, being a totalitarian country, does not allow foreigners to come in there and make films without getting a permit. You know, my film focuses on a factory. Had I applied for a permit, they would have found a factory for me that would be one of those model factories where all the rules are respected and everything is clean and the workers are happy. They have some factories like that. So instead, I went under the radar. We uh, took the camera equipment apart in Hong Kong a few times and had somebody local smuggle it into China, like a daily shopper with plastic bags 
and had to do the same to get out. It was very important to me to go to the village where the worker comes from and meet her family because we need to understand why they are willing to leave the villages and their life to go and put themselves in this situation. And every time we went to the countryside, the police were on us like flies on honey. I had my crew arrested. I filmed for a year first with a girl that was going to be the protagonist, but the police, when they found out about it, they went to her family, threatened her parents that they're collaborating with foreign media, which is tantamount to spying in the Chinese penal code. And so I had to throw it all out and start all over again. Oh, my God. And throw away an hour, a year of, of footage. I myself was once ordered to report to the police station and leave the province. And, and so it took four years to make this film. And the film has been banned in China. Fantastic. Congratulations. You know, we know that the Chinese don't allow films about the three T's, about Tiananmen, about Tibet, and about Taiwan, but they also would not allow a film about the exploitation of their own workers. Obviously, they don't want the workers to realize how exploited they are. Do you think that the workers don't realize how exploited they are? When we ask them about, do you know what the labor laws say, they don't. They don't know that they should be getting overtime compensation, that the law prohibits requiring work seven days a week. The protagonist, who is new and naive, asks, isn't there some law about this? And the others tell her, what does it matter what the law is? The owner had one conversation that he made sure that when there was no cameras around, told me that the labor inspector comes every couple of months. He always lets him know in advance when he's going to be there. When the guy arrives, he walks to the owner's office. On a table, there's a pile of jeans, the right size for the inspector, his wife, and his kids. They chat for a while, have a couple of cups of tea. Then the owner said, well, shall we go to lunch? And he has reserved a private room in a fancy restaurant. And the inspector doesn't even go to the floor to talk to the workers. And then he just signed off that he did inspection. Right. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, well, that's how, that's how it is. <laughs> that is exactly how it is. You know, in Bitter Seeds, you make another point in the film, which doesn't have to do so much with a multinational corporation coming in and marketing. You bring up a cultural point in the film that increases the stress of poor working families, and that is the expense of getting uh, one's daughter married. And this is a huge problem in India, probably in China also. On the birth of a daughter, the first thing the family thinks of is, oh my God, now I have a huge expensive burden on my hands when this young child is going to be ready to be married. First, I was stunned when I, I met farmers who said, oh, what a disaster, I have two daughters. And they would say that in front of their daughters. In the film, we have the daughter of Ramakrishna, the farmer, saying, I wish I were born a boy and I could help my father. This is the general point of view of everybody there, including the young women who are growing up feeling that they're bringing economic calamity on their families. Exactly. I mean, even when I was a young child and me and my sister would travel in India with my parents and every family we visited, whether they were relatives or friends, would go... Two daughters? Yeah, yeah. It's important in the film, of course, because it is a critical economic factor for our main character. But also, I don't want to portray rural peasant society as ideal. It's been around for a long time. It should have a right to grow and evolve organically for itself, but they certainly have certain customs and practices that are backward that are keeping them down, and that is one of them. Absolutely, but you also offer a really hopeful 
point in that when a daughter becomes economically successful, she develops a career that actually sustains herself and brings money to the family, then she becomes an asset to the family and not simply a burden. Uh, that is true. And we're talking here about uh, Manjusha, the young woman who is hoping to become a journalist. I uh, look forward to you showing the film. And if I can, I would love to be there and we can chat some more. Yes, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Mika. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your film. Uh, we'll be screening Bitter Seeds on December 6th in Berkeley. You can go to beyondholistic.org slash W-A-L-I-B to find out more information. I'm Dr. Jayshree Chander, creator of Naging Now, a podcast about prioritizing well-being. On the web at N-E-I-J-I-N-G-N-O-W dot O-R-G. Naging Now is independent and entirely listener-supported. If you enjoyed the clip, please share it with your friends. Like us on Facebook and donate generously. Your support is essential to keeping Naging Now alive. <laughs>